You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferber, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Sped Prep Academy podcast. This is episode 43, and I'm your host, Jennifer, and I've been teaching special education for 26 years. And while teaching children with special needs is my passion, I've also developed a love for teaching teachers as well. My goal is to provide you with timely and applicable information that you can immediately put into action within your own classroom, department, or program. These weekly mini doses of professional development are perfect for the busy special educator who needs just a little boost of motivation to stay in the trenches week after week. I know the mental and physical toll of being a special educator, and I want nothing more than to support you through it. If this is your first time here, welcome. I am so glad you found me. The podcast is released every Wednesday morning, so make sure you hit subscribe so that you can get your weekly reminder. If this isn't your first time here, welcome back. I would love it if you would review the show and give some feedback and let me know how this show has helped you grow as an educator and give me some ideas of what you would like to learn about in the future. Speaking of growing as an educator, have you signed up yet for the Intentional IEP Summer PD Series? You guys, you are not going to want to miss out on this one. Stephanie DeLessie from Mrs. D's Corner is hosting a summer professional development series created just for us, just for special educators. No more trying to decipher how a training will fit into your classroom or sitting through endless PD sessions that don't apply to you whatsoever. My episode on present levels of performance dropped earlier this summer, but when you sign up, you will have access to every single session, including all of the bonus sessions that she's added. To get signed up, just go to spedprepacademy.com slash SPD. So this episode is a doozy, and I say that because it is such a broad topic that every single teacher deals with, whether they are special education teachers, regular education teachers, Whether you teach elementary, middle, or high school, behavior is something that we all face at some point in our career. However, as special educators, we definitely seem to see the majority of behaviors when dealing with students. Behavior is one of the greatest challenges a special education teacher can face, and it's what brings us to tears most often. It's what keeps us up at night, and it's what can sometimes make us dread going to work each day. And honestly, it's what makes some teachers leave the field altogether. Today's guest is Sasha Long from the Autism Helper. She is a board-certified behavior analyst and former special education teacher. Sasha works full-time as a consultant, writer, and trainer, sharing strategies and best practices through her blog, podcast, membership, and online courses. Sasha travels internationally as a speaker and consultant, providing individualized training and feedback to parents, educators, therapists, and administrators in the world of autism. So Sasha is here with us today to begin the discussion of how behavior can best be addressed within our classrooms. Hey, Sasha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I I want to say that everyone probably already knows who you are. I've, I've known who you were for a long time, even though we've never connected. But go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your educational background. Well, that's so sweet of you to say. I am a former special education teacher and board certified behavior analyst. I started the Autism Helper as a way to share resources and strategies with teachers and parents. 
And when I started it, it was a blog and it's grown quite a bit that now we share our resources and strategies in a lot of different ways. We have a blog where we have a team of seven bloggers. I have a podcast, online courses, a professional development membership. So all the social platforms. So we're just kind of sharing, you know, best practices that are actionable that can help teachers kind of make the change they want to make in their classrooms. So we'll just go ahead and dive right in because this is a huge topic in special education. I want to get <laughs> as much knowledge to our listeners as I can. So when I asked you to come on the show, I said, let's talk about behavior. And, you know, that is a huge, heavy topic to try to unpack in one short episode. So let's try to break this down into just a little bit more manageable pieces. So what are some of the most common types of behaviors that a special education teacher might witness within their classroom or their program or even within a regular classroom? And what are the differences in them? So that's a really good question. I think I'm going to answer it by answering the opposite of it, if that makes sense. So, you know, a lot of the similarities that we see in challenging behaviors are going to really typically stem from a, a, a missing skill or a lack of communication that kids are, you know, exhibiting to us. And in the moment, it's sometimes really hard to see what that is. And it might be frustrating to try to identify that that missing skill. But we're going to really always see behavior change by honing in on that missing skill. So whether we are seeing, you know, falling to the floor, we're seeing blurting out, we're seeing running out of the classroom, we're seeing off test behavior, all of that is indicating that I'm missing a skill and us as the educators, the teachers, the clinicians, the parents need to kind of hone in on what that missing skill is. It's kind of fun to start to think about, you know, how similar these, you know, behaviors can be from more extreme things to even just things that are minorly disruptive, that they're all communicating something and they're communicating the need for skill instruction, which kind of is a shift in mindset for some people when we approach, you know, behavior change. So you're saying the the function of the behavior is you're miss the the student is missing something. They don't have a specific skill, you know, that has been taught to them and that's why they're acting out. Yeah, I wouldn't really say necessarily it's the function of the behavior, but teaching them how to communicate for that function of the behavior. So, you know, if we think about functions of behavior pretty simply, like all the behaviors that you or I or any student engage in is going to either be to get access to something or to escape or avoid something. So everything we do, whether we you know scroll social media, we are escaping doing our laundry. Whether we post on social media, we are getting access to attention. You know, so it's always we're trying to get access to something, trying to escape or remove something. And when when we are exhibiting behaviors, it's going to kind of fall into one of those two categories. And when we think about negative behaviors like work refusal or, or blurting out or running out of the classroom, it's still communicating one of those things. Either I'm trying to escape or avoid this task or demand because it's aversive, or I'm trying to get attention, I'm trying to get access to something, I'm trying to escape a sensory overload situation. And I think that our role as educators and parents and clinicians is to give a new way to communicate that need. We're not going to really ever take away the, the need, and we shouldn't want to, the need for wanting attention or wanting a break or wanting, you know, to attention from peers or access to an activity. But we can look at what are the ways that our learners are are requesting that. Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes I, was, I, was kind of, I was trying to go real broad and it maybe made it overly complicated. <laughs> no, no, I understand. So at the root of every behavior there, you know, there is a, 
a reason, like you said. And so when we when we dive into that a little bit deeper, can you talk about more of that the function of the behavior, like I said just a minute ago? Yeah, yeah. So I think you know, there's a lot of different ways to approach looking at that. And I really lately have been talking to teachers and parents about kind of breaking it into these two groups. Either we're trying to get access to something or we're trying to escape or avoid something. So looking at things we're trying to get access to, we could be trying to get access to attention. That could be peer attention. That could be teacher attention. That could be positive or negative attention. We could be trying to get access to an activity or a toy. We could be trying to get access to sensory stimulation. Something about the behavior we're doing internally feels good. You know, if you like lean up against a bookshelf and kind of scratch your back, you're like, oh, something about that, like inside my body feels good. So I'm going to be more likely to do that again. And then on the flip side, we have a lot of behaviors that are to escape or avoid something. And escape behaviors, you know, are universal. Like, you know, think about the last time someone called you that you didn't want to talk to. What did you do? You're like, decline, right? So when we are escaping or avoiding something, we might be escaping or avoiding a an expectation, a work demand, a, a task, a social situation. You know, that's, a, that's part of the function that we don't always recognize is escaping social demands. You know, socializing is, is taxing for all of us. And especially like as, you know, the world reopens from COVID, I know like I'm super guilty now of, of even more social escape than I used to be. I'm like, I'm not prepared to have plans three days in a row. Like, no, thank you. So, you know, we're escaping some type of situation. We are escaping a, a situation that has sensory overload. We're escaping a certain person, avoiding a certain type of activity. And it's our, it's our job to then really play detective on figuring out that why. And then once we figure out that why, figure out, okay, this is this is kind of the, the function, the purpose behind this behavior. And how can we give this learner a new, positive, pro-social way to still get access to that same why? So still getting you know access to what they previously were working towards with that negative behavior. What are some other replacement behaviors that you would put into place for a child? So a replacement behavior, when I like talk about replacement behaviors, I always say it's like the secret sauce to a behavior plan, because this is what I see missing a lot in behavior plans. I see, okay, we have to like, we're going to ignore the attention seeking behavior, or we're going to do this and that. But I'm like, but what are they going to do instead? So we've got to give them something to do instead. And it has to reach that same function. So you know, when we look at identifying a replacement behavior, we've got to do that thorough, you know, FBA functional behavior assessment first to figure out the why. And sometimes, you know, especially when I do all day trainings and I spend half the day on this, people are like, okay, get to the get to the strategies. I'm like, we can't get to the strategies until we have this foundation and until we figure out a our best guess on why this negative behavior is happening. Because we have to give that replacement and the replacement needs to get access to the same why. So if previously, you know, a learner was engaging in a behavior to escape a work demand, we still need to give them a way to escape a work demand. You know, they still need a functional way, a pro-social way to ask for a break that we're going to reinforce and say, yes, yep, we're in the middle of math class, but you know what, Johnny, you absolutely can't have a break, no problem. Um, and there's a lot of other things that go into our behavior plans, lots of proactive interventions, um, lots of, you know, fading that out later, but we want our learners at the end of the day to have a reliable replacement for that negative behavior. If we want behavior change, that's truly going to last over time. That's going to 
generalize to new settings. It's going to occur in next year's classroom and at home and five years from now. It's not based in punishment. It's not based in this one specific, really focused strategy. These are these kind of broad strategies of identifying the replacement behavior is going to be what gives our learner a lot of runway um, with with positive behavior change. Well, you spoke about home and. We've been, we've all been in those meetings where, you know, we have this really good plan in place and we're all really excited about it. And at the school, we're putting it into action and the, you know, the parents are on board and then the student goes home and they, they start out really strong and by no fault of their own, it just kind of dwindles. So what do you do when a parent won't follow through with the plan at home? You know, I think I, I became a t- I was a teacher and a behavior analyst before I had my own kids. And then when I had my own kids, I had some really humbling moments of like, oh, my God, like the things I thought parents would do like, oh, my God, the audacity. And I think, you know, whether you have your own kids or not, you have to like hone in on that, that a parent's life is not all the behavior plan. Like they've got to make dinner and go to the bathroom and go to work and take care of their other kids. And like, sometimes sit and cry in the shower, like all parents do sometimes, you know, we've got they have lives they have to, you know, and and we as as educators, we do this as parents do this, sometimes you give in to get things done, right? You're like, just take the iPad, we've got to make dinner or just, you know, let's, let's just keep it moving. And I think those are just real contingencies that we have to have really open communication with parents and caregivers on like, hey, I know you can't do this 100% of the time. No one can. Let's talk about what would be reasonable. What times of your day could we implement this in? And right now with the plan I gave you, what are the what are the hurdles? Ask them like, they're like, hey, the idea of, you know, giving my kid a break or doing whatever is going on is it's just too much or I can't implement this token economy because I lose the tokens and then I just forget about it. You know, those are things that we want to have real honest conversations with parents. And and to get there, you know, you've really got to spend the time developing rapport with parents and caregivers and and really showing them that you are on the same page with them. You are on their team. You're here for, you know, the same goal that they are to create the best life that you can, you can help create for their child. So, you know, that kind of being able to have those honest honest conversation comes from having that really great rapport, which is, I mean, that, that, that in itself could be a whole other conversation, right? (laughs) Exactly. But you're, you're totally right. That relationship that you have to build is so important and giving parents grace in accepting that they can't do everything, like you said, is, is so important. And, we, we have to have them on our side if we're going to be able to, you know, make any progress whatsoever. But so what are your best suggestions for training the paraprofessionals for, you know, dealing with the behavior and the replacement behaviors? You covered all my favorite things here. Replacement behaviors, paratraining, working with parents. I love talking about staff training. Like I could probably talk about staff training for like 25 hours. I won't. Um, I like I'm really passionate about talking about staff training because this is something that is such a huge component of a special ed teacher's job, but there is zero training on it in pretty much every undergrad program I've ever encountered. Most master's programs even really don't touch on it. And then, you know, teachers get plopped in these jobs where now a good percentage of their day needs to be on leading other adults, which is a super hard skill. I mean, the like le- the leadership industry is like a multi-billion dollar industry. Like high level CEOs get trainings and like spend all this money to train their team well. And then all of a sudden like teachers are like, oh, 
write all these behavior plans, run all these IP goals, take care of all these kids, also mm -hmm. train your team. And you're like, what? So, you know, it's a lot. And, you know, when teachers feel the weight of that, I, I feel for them because it, it does feel heavy. And I think a lot of educators are in positions where maybe their paras have been there for longer than them. Their paras are older than them. Their paras have been with these students before. So I think it can be very intimidating right off the bat. I think the very first step, no matter what type of staff training you're kind of jumping in with, is is just like that mindset shift that this is part of my job. And I have to take this as seriously as IP goals and behavior plans because you need your team working collaboratively. And I think for young teachers, and for sure, when I was a young teacher, it took me a few years to even really realize that that was on my radar because it was like treading water for a while. And then you're like, oh, I should be instructing my team a little bit better here. So I think, you know, having that mindset of this is part of my job. And then when it comes to behavior plans, especially, I always follow, you know, behavior skills training model, which is four steps. I love a checklist. This is an evidence-based practice. And in behavior skills training, we explain. So we explain what the behavior plan is, what the strategy is, what the data collection system is, whatever we're training the person on. Then we model. So we have them watch us do it. And then we rehearse, we watch them do it. And then last, you give feedback. And it's kind of just wash, rinse, repeat. You keep doing that process until they are doing it like you would. They are taking ABC data. They are teaching the replacement behavior. They are reinforcing the replacement behavior. They're running that whole behavior plan just like you would. And I think once teachers get in the practice of these are the four steps I do, your team is going to get familiar with that. Like, okay, it's not weird that she's observing me. This is part of our process on a new behavior plan. And it feels just part of the routine then. Now, when it's new, will it feel weird and uncomfortable and hard? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, we ask our, our, our kids to do hard, uncomfortable things every single day. And I think we as teachers owe it to our students to train our teams well, because we're giving them a better quality education. We're giving them a more consistent and effective behavior plan when our team is all on the same page. And that's not going to be just done by osmosis of like, oh, kind of pay attention or whatever. It has to be something that is direct and straightforward and allows for discussion and feedback and all that. So that was like a soapbox. No, I love so it. That's one of my <laughs> favorite topics as well as teaching, you know, training our paraprofessionals. And you're so right. You can't just you can't just tell them what you want them to do and expect them to go out and do it. You have to model, you have to, you know, show them exactly what's expected of them. And so I love, I love those tips. So you said we've touched on your favorite topics, paraprofessionals, parents, and, you know, function of behavior. So what about general education teachers? Help us learn what to say when teachers say things like, oh, you're just letting him have his way, or he needs to be sent to the principal's office. I've heard that one so many times throughout my career, or I don't understand why she gets to act like that and the rest of the students don't, or, you know, all of those things that we hear on a, mm -hmm. not a daily basis, I guess, but on a, you know, weekly, monthly basis, I'm hearing these things and it's so frustrating and it's hard to explain to general education teachers who've never been trained in what we're trained in to understand. So what would you, what would you say back to those general ed teachers? That's such a great question because you're absolutely right. Like teachers get asked that. It probably feels like a daily basis, even if it's not. 
And special ed teachers are often looked to, you know, as the expert on behavior and a gen ed teacher might come to them, hey, I have this, you know, problem I want you to help me out with. And I love when schools develop that community and special ed teachers can be a resource like, hey, this kid's not even on your caseload, but can you help me? Or maybe the kid is on their caseload. Mm -hmm. And it gets tricky with collaborating with, you know, your colleagues, because sometimes they are looking for advice and sometimes they're not looking for advice. And that's like a hard distinction to make. And, you know, every teacher's classroom is like their home. So if you are a special ed teacher that's, you know, inclusion or resource and you are working with gen ed teachers, that role is really tricky because you're walking into that other teacher's house and then telling them what they're doing wrong. And that like power dynamic is just like you're set up for failure there. Um, similar with parents, I think spending a lot of time building rapport is really worth it in the long run. You know, it's tempting to come in hot, to come into that classroom. You know, you observe for 15 minutes with your fifth grade student who does, you know, science in there and you see like X, Y, and Z things that are not going well for him. And this is why behavior plans aren't working. And it's easy to come in with like, these are things you're not doing. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. And, um, and immediately that other teacher is like, done. shutting no. down. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, and I get, I've been there. I've been the person that rushes in with the techniques because my, my nature, my personality is a problem solver. So I'm like, Oh, there's a problem. Let's go ahead and solve it. And I think a lot of special ed teachers are like that. So they're like, Oh, I know the answer. Like, like call on me. I'll tell you what to do to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. But we want to first get to a place where that colleague is willing to listen. And I think, you know, spelling, spending a lot of time listening and developing rapport and asking them questions and validating their struggle of, yeah, you've got 32 kids in here and it must be really hard when Johnny shouts out for every single question. That would be so frustrating. Like statements like that go a long way. And we want to kind of convey that same message that I talked about with parents you know, to our teacher colleagues that, hey, we're on the same team. Like, it's not me versus you. Like, it's it's us working together. So I think first off, you know, developing rapport and that connection. And then, and then you know, once that's there, starting to really prioritize what things, you know, often when we come in with strategies, we're ready with like the checklist of 14 different things that can be done. Again, it's tempting, but like, hey, let's just try this one thing and and try to give them a quick win. I think when you can give anyone, you know, a, a colleague, gen ed teacher, a parent, a paraprofessional, a quick win, then they've kind of got a little bit of buy-in. And then like, oh, what else you got? Like that, that was cool. What else you got? So think about something that can be really simple that, you know, will work without a lot of extra response effort from that teacher and, and then start to snowball and add more and more. Um, you know, right before COVID hit, I was doing a consult with a client who was in a gen ed uh, kindergarten for part of the day. And he really struggled in circle time. And like many amazing kindergarten and early childhood teachers, this circle time was awesome. Like it was robust. It had so many great like instructional goals and, and learning built into it, but it was super long. Like, and I could just like watch this kid check out. I also watched other kids check out being like, how many more songs are we doing? So I was like, Oh, this is awesome. This is all great. Um, why don't we add in a mini schedule for circle time? And then we could kind of go through as you go through, I'll, I'll make it for you. And as you go through each song or at each activity, you could take off the picture and it'll just be a nice way for, you know, my client to know when circle time is going to be done and how much more is left. And there's certain parts he loves. So he'll know when to look forward to it. 
And, you know, I, we talked a lot about receptive language processing and she was like, okay, cool, cool. Cause she didn't have to do much. She was like, you make me the schedule. I'll use it. When I came back like six weeks later, she was like, oh my God, did you know that that was helpful for everyone in this class? And I was like, yeah, that's why I told you to do it. Like <laughs> these aren't like special ed voodoo strategies. They're just best practices that'll help a lot of learners. So then she was like, oh, okay. Then she was more open to like other things that were more complicated on his behavior plan, but that wasn't what I was going to start off with. So you're, you're giving those strategies to the teachers, but you're also benefiting the students. I love that. So speaking of the students, we, you know, we've gone full circle. We've gone, you know, started with the students. We went to the, the parents, went to the paraprofessionals, to the teachers. Now we're back to the students. So what are your most effective strategies, I guess, for effectively managing student behavior? Really, really big picture. This is kind of the model I teach is that we want to starve it and replace it. And you need both. It's not like one or the other. So when I say starve it, and this kind of comes back to what we we're talking to at the start of our conversation, we want to identify why that negative behavior was working and make it not work as well. You know, we can't take away all of the reinforcement for that negative behavior. You know, if a fifth grader stands up in the middle of class and makes farting noises, people are going to laugh. Like it's going to happen. We can't remove that. If a student is engaging in more extreme behaviors, like sprinting out of the door or getting aggressive with other kids, we're not going to be like, oh, I'm ignoring this. This is attention seeking. I'm going to ignore this attention seeking behavior. And kids are like in a fight club, like no way. Mm -hmm. But we can, we can minimize it. You know, we can minimize the attention we give for attention seeking behaviors. We can ensure that when a child does escape, that we're not, they're not escaping to, to Disney world over there in the corner of our room. We can really, you know, we're, we're, we're part of this learner's environment and we control the environment. When we make those changes, we in turn can cause behavior change. So looking at starve it, we want to make that negative behavior less successful. And at the very, very same time, we're going to replace it. So we're going to give a new positive pro-social way to get access to the same why. And you really want to show that like, hey, this replacement behavior, this is where it's at. Like, this is going to get you what you want in a better way, more consistently. And when you follow big picture, when you follow that model, you're like I said, you're going to have a lot of success because you're going to have that. You're going to see that behavior happen in, in different settings. Um, you know, of course, nothing's that simple. So there's a lot of different layers of complication to that or caveats to that depending on, of course, the individual. And we really want to go, you know, heavy on proactive interventions as well on looking at why these behaviors are happening. Like, why, why is my learner engaging in escape behavior? You know, when we go escape behaviors, especially when it's like from an academic task or some type of expectation, my goal, yep, we're going to starve it and replace it. But I, I want to really dig deep on why that behavior is even happening. And how can I make this task less aversive? Like, why does this kid want, want to fall on the floor instead of do this? Why does he want to stare out the window instead of doing this? Um, so we can have, there's a lot of power we can, you know, that we have just in those, in those proactive interventions as well. But really big picture, that's what, you know, an effective behavior plan should have like at its core. This is, like I said before, this is a huge topic and we didn't even, you know, probably chip at the iceberg today. So <laughs> I want people to be able to find you and to learn more from you. So I'm on any social media platform at the autism helper. Um, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we share a lot. Um, our website is theautismhelper.com. We have a professional development membership, which is a really amazing group of 
educators and clinicians and parents who get ongoing training every month. And then we have two online courses. One is on literacy, and that one is not open for enrollment at the moment. But our first one is on behavior change, which is what we're talking about. And that one is currently open for enrollment. We do have a free webinar you can take on bribery versus reinforcement if you're interested on getting a taste of it. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I know that you're going to have to come back at some point to, you know, to <laughs> dive into this just a little bit deeper. But I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and, and helping us learn about behavior. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for sticking with me until the end. I can tell that just by listening to this show that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am, and you want to grow into an amazing educator, and I'm here for it. I'm here for you, and I'm so thrilled to be able to share all of my wisdom of being a veteran SPED teacher on the SPED Prep Academy podcast. Speaking of growing as an educator, I have a way for you to unlock your superpowers the ones that you never knew you possessed, and to discover the kryptonite that's been holding you back from becoming the amazing special educator that you've always wanted to be. It's my What's Your Special Educator Superpower, and it's a short quiz that will only take a minute or two of your time, but it will give you clarity on how you can manage your staff so that you can become a stronger leader. Just go to spedprepacademy.com quiz and see what superhero you get today. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to share it with your friends, go ahead and screenshot an image of your favorite episode and tag me on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the show and leave a review. They give an instant boost to my ego and help others find the podcast as well. And I'd love it if you'd join us in the private SPED Prep Academy Facebook community. We are a safe space where special educators and related service providers can talk shop. If you liked what you heard today and realized you found your SPED soulmate, Please subscribe and then head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.